Hi, welcome to the Gateway House podcast. Uh, I'm your host Dave Lewis, and today we're joined by a special guest, uh, Christine Fair, who is the latest visiting fellow here at Gateway House. Um, she's also an assistant professor at Georgetown, and she's going to be joining us here uh, for the summer for the next couple of months. Um, she's had a checkered career. She spent time uh, as a senior fellow at West Point, at the Rand Corporation, U.S. Institute for Peace. The UN mission in Kabul, as well as written numerous books, including her most recent, uh, "Fighting to the End," is Pakistan Army's the Pakistan Army's way of war. Um, she's roamed South Asia and Pakistan extensively, uh, and she even has a portrait of a dog signed by General Musharraf. Uh, and I'm sure we'll uh, hear some stories about that uh, through the summer. So, welcome, Christine. Thank you for having me. Um, so, in today's podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about the U.S. relationship with Pakistan. Um, and in, Christine, in, in a recent report, you advocated that the U.S. should adopt a policy of containment to Pakistan, and that it should treat Pakistan as a hostile state, ultimately because its policy of appeasement um, has, over the past decades, has failed. So, you know, before we get into explaining why that, why this policy should, should change to containment, can you just give our listeners a bit of background of American assistance and appeasement to Pakistan over the past decades? Yeah, I mean, the problem is since 9-11, um, the United States went to war with Pakistan. Um, when it decided to invade Afghanistan, it thought that the most reasonable partner was going to be Pakistan. Uh, I've argued elsewhere that that was probably a very bad idea, because the irony is, is that you, in going to war with Pakistan, you went to war with the only state that in the region that actually opposed exactly what you were trying to do. So the Pakistanis from the beginning have basically supported us very selectively. They initially helped us with Al-Qaeda. We weren't that interested in the Taliban, and so we didn't care that the Pakistanis were supporting the Taliban and enabling their insurgency that they launched in 2005. So the idea was from the beginning that we needed access uh, to Afghanistan. We needed to have the ability to move war material into Afghanistan, and that required, at least in the American point of view, Pakistan, um, because of our relationship with Iran. Uh, the other thing that we needed was we needed the Pakistan military to be engaged along the Afghanistan border. So, for example, in the early months and year of the war, um, if we were conducting operations in Tora Bora, we wanted the Pakistanis to wrap up anyone that was fleeing into Pakistan as, as, we, as we pursued them. We now know that Pakistan really didn't do that. Um, as the conflict changed and our focus moved from Al-Qaeda to the Taliban, we're in this very awkward situation where we're paying Pakistan considerably, $30 billion since 2001, to help us in this conflict in Afghanistan, even while it's supporting the Taliban. And it's worth noting that virtually every single one of our casualties has been due to the Taliban, not to Al-Qaeda. So in some sense, it's like putting the, the pederast priest in charge of the daycare. I mean, that basically summarizes um, the policy that we've had towards Pakistan. So, so $30 billion since 2001, that's, that's a lot of money uh, going. So, wh so where has this money been going? Why do you, why do you sort of say it's a, a lucrative bribe almost? Well, so, so there's different kinds of monies that go to Pakistan. So some of it has just been economic support because, and this derives from this idea that everyone is so afraid of Pakistan failing, that it's too dangerous to fail. And so um, that is what's basically called budgetary support to, to help right the, the country's financial woes 
And this is deeply problematic because that's also um, a moral hazard. They don't have to undertake fiscal reform because the United States is bailing them out. And most importantly, something that I don't talk about in this piece explicitly is through the IMF. The U.S. puts pressure on the IMF to keep bailing Pakistan out. The second kind of funding is basically um, direct military support. And this is where we essentially either give them money to buy military products from us or we simply give them military goods at no cost to them without using, quote unquote, their national funds. Um, and this is very problematic because many of the military uh, platforms that we've allowed the Pakistanis to acquire, either through our money or through their so-called national funds, which are really American funds, laundered as national funds, have not been um, suitable for counterinsurgency counterterrorism operations. They include nuclear-capable F-16s. Technically, they're dual use, but we know that they're going to be more useful um, in fighting India than perhaps militants. Um, we've given them um, a Perry-class frigate, air-to-air -air missiles, I mean, as if the Taliban have an air force. I mean, the, if you just go through the whole list of things that we've given them, um, some of them are dual use. They can be used against um, insurgents, terrorists, in asymmetric conflicts, but most of them um, are, are more suited for a conventional conflict. The biggest and most complicated program to explain is what's called coalition support funds. Coalition support funds was supposed to reimburse them for the marginal cost of engaging um, in support activities to the war in Afghanistan. What it really was was an incredibly lucrative reimbursement with very little oversight. And there was a report done by the government accounting office that showed that billing for a roti was very different across the different services in Pakistan. There's no reason why it should be. Um, and the idea was as long as they were billing at a price point that was less than what it would cost the Americans to do, the invoices tended to be approved. So it was, an, it was basically a slosh fund. It was essentially a bribe to keep the G-locks open, the G-locks are the ground lines of control from which products move from the port in Karachi through Pakistan and into Afghanistan. And it was also um, a bribe, essentially, to keep the Pakistan military engaged on the West. So when you sort of look at this in totality, it's kind of hard to, to see what, what have we gotten for it. We've gotten a lot of dead soldiers, so the Pakistanis take our money with one hand and give it to the Taliban with the other. Um, Osama bin Laden caught in Abbottabad. Um, it's not clear who knew about Osama bin Laden's residence in Abbottabad, which is, of course, where Pakistan's military academy um, at Kokhul is located. And they haven't done anything to investigate who sheltered him, who was responsible for harboring him. So it's a mixed bag at best. Um, it's, it's hard to say that this has been a successful program. So, I mean, so you, when you explain it like that, it seems almost preposterous that the U.S. with sophisticated intelligence and, you know, know-how continues to fall for this, for this trap. So what's the, what's the thinking in Washington? Why, why do they continue to do what, they, what they're doing right now and haven't changed path? So, I mean, I guess there are three reasons, broadly speaking. One, when you have troops in Afghanistan, you're going to do everything you can to keep those troops there and to keep them resupplied. And so what it, what it essentially means is you're going to put up, it's like a parking meter. You know, you, you pay for an hour and you get a minute. You, you know you're going to pay for an hour and you know you're going to get a minute. There's a certitude that we're paying for an hour and we're going to get a minute. And I think there's this predictability that 
we know we can get this stuff through. Now, I would argue it hasn't been terribly predictable. There have been periods of time when they've shut down the G-locks um, to put pressure on us. And in those periods, we did find alternative routes. And as soon as the Pakistanis felt as if they were losing influence, they reopened the cheaper G-locks. And we went right back to it. I, I argued, don't, don't grab the stuff through Pakistan. Keep paying the higher price to be independent of them. But that, that, that was a, an argument that was never going to win. So that's the first thing, supporting the troops. The second thing is this idea that um, having this presence in Pakistan gives us influence. And there's two things that they want influence and also visibility into. One is their nuclear weapons program and the other is their production of militants. I would argue that we don't have any influence. And if we do have influence, we haven't exercised it. Um, and two, it's not clear what the benefits this visibility is, but that will always be the counter argument to not doing this. Um, we want visibility and we want influence. And then the third point goes back to uh, what I said in the beginning, is that there is this perennial concern that Pakistan is too dangerous to fail. And Washington has a fairly conceited view of its aid, that somehow without American aid, country X will fail. Um, and they have a pretty short-sighted view of Pakistan. Pakistan is pretty resilient. So it's those three issues. Um, once you have troops in country, you're going to put up with a lot of crap to take care of those troops. Um, B, visibility and influence. And then C, Pakistan's too dangerous to fail. And you take these three things into consideration, and it produces um, political stasis. Right. So, so, so not appeasement. So appeasement is clearly failed, and, and you've you've outlined that. So, so then, how does so what does this policy of containment look like? Like, what, how do you think the U.S. should do this? Yeah, so I think there's actually a lot of lessons from the Soviet Union. One, we had no illusions that they were our friends. <laughs> we cooperated when it was in our interest, um, and so containment basically meant we're going to contain the nastiness that they um, proliferate. And we're going to entertain some hopes of engaging those parts of the population that want a different future. Um, and so there was this, this idea of civil, so civil society transformation. But you work with people that you can work with. You don't, you don't force it. If people want, um, for example, Radio Free Europe, um, you know, that, was a, that was an interesting experiment. We should be doing things of that nature, things on the margin that support Pakistan's modernizers. The problem is actually the U.S. has really crappy intelligence on Pakistan. They don't have linguists. They, um, the people to whom they give these grants, are the, the folks they meet at dinner parties, the people who speak English and drink. Um, that's the sort of metric of a liberal in in, in the the U.S. government understanding of Pakistan. So they, I don't even think that they know how to support civil society because many of the organizations they've supported have not been civil. Like Jamaat Islami is not civil. Um, they went to great efforts to support madrasa leadership. That's not civil society. They want a different vision for Pakistan. So th there is that component of supporting civil society when and where you can, but most importantly, thinking about containment. And what does containment mean? So it means certainly never giving them strategic weapon systems. I mean, to me, that's madness. I don't even understand why we would do this. Um, if they want to continue doing military training with us, that's fine. Educational training, I mean but it should be centered upon things like disaster relief, um, search and rescue, peacekeeping operations, things where Pakistan contributes to the global commons. That's, and, and then, of course, civil military 
uh, relations. My suspicion is when they don't get the goodies, they don't want to do the training either. But that's, that's Pakistan's problem. It's not ours. It also means being much more aggressive using instruments of punishment, um, using UN designation, what we call JSOC, special, Joint Special um, Operations Targeting. Um, most of the militant groups that operate from Pakistan operate outside of Pakistan, where we should be working with our with our collaborators to eliminate them. What's Pakistan going to do if we kill a Jamaat Dawa guy uh, in Thailand? Complain? Oh, you killed our terrorists. Oh, okay, we'll complain away. Um, we should be very clear about not giving visas to anyone for whom we have intelligence that they're involved in supporting these groups. Um, and so I'm I'm advocating that we we really think about a very different paradigm where Pakistan's not a problematic ally, but rather it's a hostile state. And definitionally it is a hostile state. It, it undermines all of our interests. Um, so I don't, I, I, I'm just at a loss as to understand why we want to view Pakistan as a problematic ally. Now, of course, the reason why we do that is because of the troops in Afghanistan. Um, so presumably any kind of realignment um, can only happen when we no longer depend upon them for the G-locks. And that also, thinking towards the future, this rapprochement with Iran is really important. Because you, if you're going to be thinking about stabilizing Afghanistan, you can't do it if you're not friends with Iran. That's been the problem with American policy from the beginning, was that um, the Iranians were initially very supportive under Khatami, and George Bush decided to include them in the axis of evil as opposed to continuing to consolidate the gains that we made with Iran in the early days of 9-11 and the, and the invasion of Afghanistan. So that's a, that's a game changer, is what happens with U.S.-Iranian um, rapprochement. Yeah, I think we'll all be eager to see what happens when this deal um, is reached or not reached at the end of yep. this month, actually. So one question in, in my mind, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are thinking the same, is so within this U.S. new policy of containment to Pakistan, where does India feature? How, how does India feature in this sort of triangle? Well, so look, I mean, from my point of view, and I think a lot of Indian commentators have echoed this, the, the U.S.-Indian relationship, how do you take that seriously when the U.S. is selling Pakistan and giving Pakistan the kind of weaponry that we have been? It's very hard to take the rhetoric of U.S.-Indian relations seriously, at least on that on that particular issue. Um, I think for many years, the United States just thought that Lashkar Taiba, for example, was India's problem. And, and to some extent it is. But um, the fact is India and the U.S. have a lot more in common. Naturally, you don't have to force this relationship. We have things in common, we'll work together because we have these things in common. So, I mean, I think India, like all of the other regional partners, should be a partner in containing Pakistan. One of the things I think is really important is that when there's been a terrorist attack here, the United States has tended to say to the Indians, don't escalate, don't be provocative. Um, in other words, putting the onus upon India to not escalate after a terrorist attack. I think the U.S. needs to withdraw itself from this conflict cycle because what the United States essentially has done is shielded Pakistan from the consequences of its behavior. Now that does put India in the hot spot in the sense that India has also relied upon the U.S. to create a situation where it can back down, right? Um, so India hasn't been tested in that regard to see what its options are vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan. 
but I think that's something that that should be India's choice. It shouldn't be the United States' choice. So that does mean that India has to sort of think about what are its military options vis-a-vis Pakistan. There must be something between doing nothing and doing everything. And I think that's where the Manmohan Singh government has failed. You know, I was a proponent of Cold Start, actually, or something like Cold Start, um, because the lessons of limited, the lessons of Cargill is that limited war is possible under the nuclear umbrella. And all the things that provide Pakistan impunity, India also has those things. Right? There's no reason why India can't be reciprocating right. in the shenanigans that Pakistan engages in. If, if nuclear weapons protect Pakistan, they also protect India. Right. And so I think what, what Pakistan has become accustomed to seeing India as a vulnerable target where it can prosecute its agenda with impunity because it has largely experienced impunity. So if we want Pakistan to behave differently, it has to start bearing the cost of its behavior across the whole range of costs, be it economic, be it politically, diplomatic, and militarily, and also through covert operations. Okay. Well, well, thanks, Christine. That was a very clear and sort of breakdown of why the U.S. does what it does and why, why it should you know, change track. Um, well, we look forward to having you, uh, you know, in the coming weeks and months, uh, discussing and looking deeper into the different angles that uh, make up this complicated web.